This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Department of the Navy has more than a dozen reference architectures ranging from zero trust to cybersecurity to the Joint All-Domain Command and Control, or JADC2 program. The problem is very few people who are developing systems in these areas read or understand these often complex and dry documents. In his weekly feature, The Reporter's Notebook, executive editor Jason Miller writes about how the Department of the Navy is trying something new to drive standardization around application development. Jason joins me now to discuss. How you doing, Jason? Good, Eric. Let's start with what is a reference architecture? Why does DOD have so many and why don't people read them? That is the never ending question. What are they? Why do they hear so many? And why don't people read them? Basically, a reference architecture is a document or set of documents that provide recommended structures and integrations of IT products and services to form that system or application that you are developing. The document includes best practices and other helpful hints to ensure the project is successful. Now, the reason why DOD has so many is they just build up over time. DOD has something called an overarching framework called the DODAF, the DOD Architecture Framework, DODAF, DODAF. That led to a series of other technical documents that were built off that DODAF. Now, what DOD and really all agencies have this type of architecture framework have come to learn is that, well, architecture documents aren't a lot of fun, nor they're easy to read, easy to understand, or easy to use, despite the fact that they are actually very important. Don Yeski is a cloud solutions architect for the Department of Navy. He explains, with a little bit of humor, why architecture and architects aren't too popular. I hate architects. <laughs> I hate architects. And, and I'll tell you why. The way we use architects and produce architectures is totally wrong. It's completely wrong. You all have been involved in developing lots of DOD capabilities, I'm sure. And if you were involved in a program that was of a high enough acquisition category, then you had to produce architectures in a language. What's the language called? DODAF. And in order to do that, somebody was brought into that team who was an architect, right? We brought them into the team. This is, this is our architect. And that group or that person has the sole job of going around and bothering all the people who are actually developing and delivering anything to try to figure out how it actually works. Again, Don Yeski, Cloud Solutions Architect for the Department of Navy, having some little fun at the FCA Nova lunch the other uh, last week. But he's right that architecture and architecture have a reputation of adding time, difficulty, and frustration to many projects. Gotcha. And what did the Department of Navy's CIO's office release to try to fix this challenge? The Don CIO released a new document on September 6th. It's called Version 1 of the Capstone Design Concept for Information Superiority. It's almost as bad as the title as calling something a reference architecture. But what this is, is a 14-page document that Yeski says he wishes was even shorter, but can serve as a guide for system and application developers. It's not going to be the last, but it is the first document of its kind. And the deep, dark secret I want you to know and not tell anyone else is that it's architecture, okay? What it is, though, is what you were supposed to take away from the architectures. It's the intent behind the architectures. And by the way, it's also our intent, because at the Don CIO, what we think matters. We have opinions on how people ought to do things. And we try to make it the case that solutions have some common elements. 
Again, Don Yeski from the Department of Navy CIO's office talking about this capstone design concept. It actually brings pieces from the other architectures, a dozen or more across DOD. But because nobody reads them, nobody speaks DODAF, as uh, Yeski says. What the Don tried to do was write this in more plain terms, what he calls English, which everyone can understand. That they can. So how is the Department of Navy making the capstone design document easier to understand and use? Well, first of all, the goal of the document is pretty straightforward, and, and this is, comes right from the document, to securely move any information from anywhere to anywhere else. Sounds pretty simple. Yes, he says there are two outcomes, three objectives, and four attributes underneath that main goal. Operational resilience and customer experience. It has three objectives, and everything we want to do fits somewhere into those three objectives. First one's optimize the information environment for cloud Objective two is adopt enterprise services because it turns out doing things once isn't nearly as impressive as doing the same thing well all the time. And the third thing that we want to do is get people implementing zero trust. If we were to do those three things, we think we would achieve the two outcomes and get ourselves to the one goal. But even if we did all of that, the way that we've described it, we could still do it really, really poorly. So we have four attributes, KSAs, key system attributes, right? We're not calling them that, but that's kind of what they are. And they are dynamic, customer-focused, best value cost, and confidence-inspiring. The Department of Navy CIO's cloud solution architect, Don Yeski, he goes on to say that each objective will turn into a major design concept, talking about what it, what it will mean to optimize the Don information environment, for example. Eventually, the Don will have defined everything in bite-sized chunks, kind of think about cliff notes, like you and I were in high school Eric, when we decided we don't want to read that book, we wanted to look at the cliff notes. Each of these design documents, these bite-sized measurable chunks, will be those cliff notes with the end goal really creating an easy-to-use, easy-to-understand set of documents to help drive standardization across whether it's cybersecurity or the information environments to make systems and applications work better and more securely together. That's right. Younger folks can uh, look up on Wikipedia what cliff notes are, <laughs> since that's what the tool they use now more than dates. I think and they so, still have them, don't they? <laughs> so looking down the road, what are the Don's plans to continue to build on the capstone design document in the future? I think it's going to take a lot of easy and early wins to get folks on board, right? I mean, we've seen these architectures for years. People aren't excited by them. So the Don CIO really has to show value and benefits for why folks, the application developers, should follow these documents. Now, yes, he says one example of this is around enterprise services. As of Tuesday, the Information Superiority Advisory Board has, has adopted and approved the very first Don Enterprise Service. It is the Naval Integrated Modeling Environment. And what it does is it hosts uh, model-based systems engineering tools and provides a shared repository for the models to live in so that people can iteratively and incrementally and collaboratively develop and deliver anything that you can do through a digital engineering approach, right? So it's just a shared set of tools with a shared repository to do that digital engineering work. If we didn't have that or something like it as an enterprise service, what would we do? Well, I can tell you what we would do because it's what we're doing now. Everybody's trying to create their own version of that, right? Everybody's trying to create their own shared repository. Yes, he says that will further cause duplication, wasted money, and lack of standardization if they're all trying to create their own shared repositories, their own sets of systems. 
now with through this having this, this set of enterprise services, everyone will have a starting point to make it easier to obtain tools that will help reinforce these concepts of the design document. Yeski says the next enterprise service cycle will be the Naval Identity Management Service to make it easier for application developers to integrate authorization and authentication tools into their products. Now, this is the end goal, not to do architecture, but really to create products that will be easy to use and safe, secure, not to create an architecture that will sit on the shelf and that developers will ignore. The Don Sierra's office wants to provide enough detail to make it, again, easy to use, but not so much that they get ignored. And in the end, the goal here, again, deliver capabilities that work, that is secure, secure to the sailor, seaman, or whomever across the DOD. All right. So we'll have to see if they have more, get more eyeballs on those documents. Federal News Network's Jason Miller, thank you so much for giving us an update. My pleasure. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology, and the section chief of office and policy for the FBI's deputy director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what does that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. <laughs> sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I didn't. I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know. In retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving, all helped me. I will say, 
there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say, I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job, something he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, 
right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right? To up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. Your training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs, how, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right? And diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay, and stay um, engaged and passionate. And then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES-level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or healthcare, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. 
Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.